today. Good to see you. Um, there's an outline there that's got the passage, a little song that we won't sing together. And we're not in the anatomy uh, lecture halls. I've often thought, no, I shouldn't say that. In the last few months, I've been thinking that if there's one place of the university that should be full of songs and praise and worship, it's the biology and the anatomy department, where you keep stumbling into the magnificent stuff that God has made, although there is a relatively recent myth that it all was made by something else. But uh, we'll pray in the chemistry lecture hall anyhow. Father, it's a great thing to be alive and we thank you for the gift of life. We thank you that you've safely brought us to this lunchtime. Uh, Father, you know uh, where we're at in terms of our relationship with you, our life with you, our trust in you, our simple physical and mental energy. And we pray now, God, this wouldn't be a waste of time and just more words, but that uh, you would help us to understand you better, to understand our world and to live with greater joy and greater passion. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the more thoughtful atheists I've ever spent some years dialoguing with is a man called Miles. And uh, I met him when I was working at a school. And after we'd been speaking for about a year or so about various aspects of the truth or untruth of Christianity, he made an interesting statement one lunchtime where he said this. These are his words, not mine. He said, I've been studying both the students and the teachers at this school. And he said, it's perfectly clear to me that the happiest members of staff and the happiest students are the Christians. I was interested to hear that because the myth is that when you become a Christian, we become dour, sour, and the joy and the happiness is found with the party animals. But his observation was that the happiest and the most cheerful were those who were following Christ. That's, of course, I would have thought fairly straightforward. If it wasn't that way, you'd have to say there's something seriously wrong with the health of the Christianity of the staff and the other students. Joy, deep happiness, a deep sense of life is good. Things are going to go out well from here. Joy grows from hope. Viktor Frankl is one of my favourite writers from the 20th century, did an awful lot of his intense thinking when he was in a concentration camp. He was Jewish, was run by the Nazis. He lived through about three years of that and then was released and then continued to practice as a psychotherapist for many decades. But he, uh, his book called Man's Search for Meaning is really well worth a read at some stage, uh, written by a deeply experienced and thoughtful non-Christian man. One of his statements that is often quoted is that man can only live by looking to the future. Man can only live by looking to the future. All of us do that. Human beings are creatures that make most of our decisions on the basis of our view of the future. We mightn't think of it consciously. Even if our view of the future is only the next five minutes, we decide what to do now fundamentally on the basis of what we think is coming and how what I do now will impact on what's coming. Some of what we do is because of what we promise to do. But sometimes we'll even work out whether or not we should keep our promise, as if that's ever a question, on the basis of how it might work out for us in the future. And certainly a person's emotional state 
is determined by our view of what's coming. So of course you'd expect Christians to be cheerful and optimistic because they've got such a clear and positive view of what God has in store for us. You lose that if that just becomes a technical thing that you kind of believe because you're Christian, like I used to believe about the love of God, I kind of believed it but didn't know it in any way, shape or form. Uh, If you lose a a real sense of where God is taking you, the reality of the new heaven and the new earth, of our eternity of being with him, that time when there will be no more tears, there will be no more weeping, it will be new. When you lose that, you lose an awful lot of your joy, your willingness to stand with Christ when it's hard, your willingness to suffer, to go through hardship for Christ. Christians will be, generally speaking, an optimistic, cheerful bunch even in the midst of hardship. Now that is in stark contrast to many cultures. Even in our own culture that tries so hard to stay happy and is constantly trying to invent new ways to divert ourselves so we don't have to think, even our culture has got a number of expressions that show that really at a deep level rather than a superficial level, we're not all that happy. Life is not fundamentally optimistic. You can see it in our enormous problem with depression in the growing problems that we have with anxiety. But you can see it in some of our expressions. These two I've seen on different T-shirts. Life's a beach and then you die. That's the optimist. The pessimist view is life's a bitch and then you die. But sadly they both finish in roughly the same place. Uh, Life is either a beach, that is it's a good time, but then you die. Uh, Or life's a bitch and then you die. So you've got negative heading to negative, positive heading to negative. Either way, it's not actually an optimistic thing. I was reading the writing of an Australian fashion writer on the weekend and when she was asked questions about her great questions, mind you, it was only one single column, it wasn't a great long article, Alana Hill I think her name was, and she was saying, when I asked her what was was the great question that she thinks about, she said, what will happen to me at death? She's in her 20s. She's healthy. Successful. But the question that she admits to having is what will happen to me in the end at the point of death? The culture in which Christianity came was probably more pessimistic than ours. They spoke of hope often as a thing that mocked you. Um, listen to what was what written on one of the guy's graves from that period. I was not, I became, I am not, I care not. It's a cheerful summary of life, isn't it? Was not, became, am not, cannot. Well, Theogenes, uh, one of the many Greek philosophers, he's quoted by quite a few people from, the, from that age, says this, the best of all for mortals is to never have been born. So we've missed that one, sorry. Um, but for those who have been born, to die as soon as possible. Because in the end, that's where you're heading. Life's full of pain. It's fundamentally not all that cheerful. Even you see a movie like Match Point, which has got some nice uh, bits and pieces in it, but fundamentally what that movie's on about is that your life is really determined by luck. Work all you like. Try as hard as you can. But so much of your emotional happiness, so much of your health, will just be a question of luck. And that's not a cheerful perspective. But if it's true, it's best to be faced. Now, of course, Jesus speaks an awful lot about the future. 
Some suggest that one in every 15 of Jesus' words is about the future, the return, his coming back. Let me read to you, and you've got it in front of you. The words of a hymn, we had uh, a few people at our church who went off to plant a church at Piermont, and on the last service that they were with us in the morning, uh, we we had a bit of a farewell and a bit of a send-off and a bit of a commissioning, and uh, I said to one of the ladies, um, I said, would you, um, have you got a favourite hymn you'd like us to sing? Um, And she mentioned this hymn, which I'd never heard of. I won't sing it to you, although it's got a great tune, which goes with the sort of dignified word. Listen to the, the view of the future. Great God, what do I see and hear? The end of things created. The judge of mankind doth appear on clouds of glory seated. The trumpet sounds, the graves restore the dead which they contained before. Prepare my soul to meet him. The dead in Christ shall first arise at the last trumpet sounding, caught up to meet him in the skies with joy their Lord surrounding. No gloomy fears their souls dismay. His presence sheds eternal day on those prepared to meet him. But sinners filled with guilty fears, behold his wrath prevailing. In woe they rise, but all their tears and sighs are unavailing. The day of grace is past and gone. Trembling they stand before his throne, all unprepared to meet him. Great God, to thee my spirit clings, thy boundless love declaring. One wondrous sight my comfort brings, the judge my nature wearing. Beneath his cross I view that day, when heaven and earth shall pass away, and thus prepare to meet him. An enormous number of the expressions in that song come from 1 and 2 Thessalonians. But that was the future which the Apostle had taught, that he had preached when God brought them to that part of Greece. But they've got a problem. I suppose you don't tend to write letters unless there's some sort of a problem. I heard an author the other day, an Irish author, saying there'd be no writers in paradise. Because he said, it's only when you're irritated by something that you tend to write. And you only tend to get letters in the New Testament when there's a problem. So the Apostle's written to this baby church. He's really excited about them because they've got faith that's growing and love that's growing. But he comes in chapter 2 to the real heart of the problem for these guys. And it's an important one. The particular shape of it, I want to suggest, you and I probably won't have, but we'll have other ways in which these challenges will come to us. Look at verse 1. Now, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy, report or letter supposed to have come from us saying that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in in any way. So you see the problem here, the issue. This is a standaway that the Apostle begins a new topic. Now concerning. Concerning two things, or it's one thing with two halves, the coming of our Lord Jesus... This uses the other great word the New Testament uses to speak of the return of Christ. One is the revelation of Jesus. Jesus is here present with us today. Present but not visible. On that day he will be inescapably visible both to those who pretend that he isn't and to those who have longed for his coming. He'll be visible. This is the word, the coming of our Lord Jesus, often used of when the emperor would come. It's where he would turn up, often well announced, so you could clean up the litter and stuff like that and paint the buildings the coming of this great, majestic, imperial person. So he says, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and what goes with that, we know this from 1 Thessalonians 4, and our being gathered to him, he will come and we will be gathered together to be ever with him, 
He says, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to be unsettled or alarmed, not to get in a flat, is the sort of way it's speaking. Something's happened that concerning the return of Jesus, the Thessalonian young Christians, although they're growing and, and being changed by the Spirit, are all in a flap and anxious and, and uh, all getting tied up in knots because, well, at this point, the Apostle Paul isn't quite sure where the problem comes from. He says, don't become unsettled or alarmed by a prophecy or a report or a letter supposed to have come from us. Now, what the end result of this sort of authoritative message has come to them is this, that the day of the Lord has already come. The day of the Lord is just another way of speaking about the return of Jesus when it will be his day, you know, inescapably. So they've heard from a source that they trust that the day of the Lord has already come. He's already returned. He's already come back to earth. And this is causing them all sorts of, uh, you know, concern. They're puzzled. This is, if he's come, it shouldn't be like it is now. And yet, well, where have they got this crazy idea from? Well, the apostle doesn't know, but he, but he suggests three options. One is a prophecy. Someone in their meeting has felt led and prompted by the Holy Spirit to say something. Something where they sense that this is what God wants them to say. The Spirit speaking through them. And as we know from the Bible, sometimes the prophets are right and sometimes the prophets are wrong. But here there seems to be a deceitful spirit. That's why the Bible says test the spirits. And the spirit has said he's already come. The Lord has come. That would be good news in one, in one sense. Or maybe they've heard a report. Someone said, I was talking to the Apostle Paul in Athens or Corinth and he said Jesus has already come. Or maybe they've actually received a forged letter. That's why he says so unsettled by a prophecy, a report or a letter supposed to have come from us. And the, this possibility that there's been a forged letter who knows who would write it and why they'd write it, to unsettle this group of baby Christians that have been persecuted. Uh, in order to sort of deal with that possibility, at the bottom of the page I've put you the last couple of verses of the letter. This makes sense. This concern the Apostle has that maybe there's a forged letter from him. 2 Thessalonians 3.16 at the bottom of your outline there. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand which is the distinguishing mark in all my letters. This is how I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you all. It was very common in those days for someone to have someone who would actually they'd, they'd dictate and someone else would write it. And it seems that some of Paul's letters were clearly done like that. But he would scroll his signature at the bottom. Paul. So he just draws attention to it. I write this letter in my own hand. He's saying, check the signature. This is not a forgery. Either way, these poor young Christians have got this weird message that rather than waiting and hoping, Jesus has already come. Now that might seem crazy to us, but if you look at 2 Timothy chapter 2, he'll speak about people who have a gangrenous teaching that really damages the church. And what is it? That the resurrection of the dead has already happened, which is part of the whole return of Jesus thing. So for some reason or other, in a way that I don't understand, there was this idea that troubled some of the early Christians that Jesus hadn't already just had his first coming where he lives and dies for us. But the second coming has already happened. Now, of course, if the second coming, the, the revelation of Jesus has come, what are you hoping for? What are you looking forward to? You're a dope if you're looking forward to because it's already behind you. And so whatever is happening in your life is as good as it gets. And you know what the Apostle says about that? He says, if, if we, only for this life we've hoped in Jesus, we're of all men most to be pitied. 
Because you put your hope and life and faith into Jesus, you will suffer. We looked at that last week. It's an absolute guarantee. You will experience hardship in your life as a Christian that you wouldn't have if you weren't Christian. Now, at the same time, you'll avoid a truckload of suffering. But he says, this is a troubling thing because you're not going to live the life of hope. You're not going to enjoy the calm and the cheerfulness and the confidence and the courage unless you understand that this short life of suffering is soon to be followed by a long and eternal weight of glory. So that's what's happening. They've not been forbidden to speak about the second coming as we looked at last week in some places. They haven't forgotten about the return of Jesus as might happen to you or me. They've got a sort of authoritative word saying it's already happened. When I worked as a bus conductor for nine months, it was good fun. In the good old days of bus conductors and um, it was a high stress occupation and uh, it you could get fined if you did things wrong as a bus conductor or a bus driver in particular, particularly if you went early. Particularly by the end of the day, you were keen to get, you know, get early because quicker you get to your last run, you roar off home to the depot, you get home early. If you were busted by the bus inspectors, and they used to hide behind trees, it was ridiculous, trying to nail us. And um, if you were caught a minute fast, you could be fined. But you never, ever, ever got fined if you were late. Because the logic was this, that if the bus timetable says the bus will be there at 8.10am, you have a right as a member of the public to get there at 8.10am and not to have missed it. So the bus can't get there early because nothing more frustrating than waiting for something that's already happened. For me, that's the tragedy of being Jewish. For For the present religious Jews who are still waiting for the Messiah to come. You can feel the tragedy of that, can't you? Because the Messiah has already come. That is, if Jesus is not alive, who claims to be the Messiah. But to be waiting for something that has already come, dopey. You'll quickly not give up on that. So here's the infection which will cause a loss of hope, a loss of courage, a loss of joy. Well, what does the apostle do? Well, he gets out the disinfectant. The most common medicine that was used in my home, which or my parents' home that I grew up in, was Dettol. And, you know, you'd, you'd be out playing, you'd hurt yourself. I remember the day I stepped on one nail, took all my weight off that foot and stepped on another bit of wood with another nail. So I remember hobbling in like this. And what does my mother do? She gets out the nasty liquid that's brown and you put it in the hot water and it goes this murky, magic white. And she inflicts hot detail onto my um, you know, uh, Jesus-like feet at that point. <laughs> and... Uh, but the reason she would so often inflict detail on, and I then, you know, because you just learned from your parents, I then enjoy doing the same thing to my children, <laughs> was because infections have to be fought. In fact, up until an Aussie bloke invented or worked out how the penicillin thing worked, hospitals were full of people who died just from infections. It's hard for us to realise how serious an infection was in the days before detail and penicillin. And so what the apostle here does is he gets out the disinfectant. He needs to kill this error. Because if you don't deal with false doctrine, false thinking, you'll end up with false living, false emotions. It all falls apart. So how does he do it? Well, he deals with it in what the G.E. Ladd, one of the great New Testament scholars in the last couple of decades, says this. There are no darker words in the entire Pauline corpus, that is the body of Paul's letters, There are no darker words in the entire Pauline corpus than these, and any interpretation must at best be a hypothesis. So we're going to look now at what most of the commentators agree are some of the most puzzling words the Apostle Paul ever wrote. Okay, so uh, just a few minutes of interesting work. I think there'll be fruit for us, though. 
although we'll have to admit there are some things we don't know, but there'll still be some useful fruit for us. Okay, what does he say is the answer? Verse 3, don't let anyone deceive you in any way. So the problem is deception. For that day will not come until... Now, the numbers there I put there, they're not in the text. One, the rebellion occurs. Two, the man of lawlessness is revealed. The man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? And now you know what is holding him back so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendour of his coming. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan, displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs and wonders, in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. Well, he says there are two things must happen before Jesus returns. And he says because these things haven't happened, it's clear Jesus hasn't returned. Now, just interesting because this is how the Holy Spirit chooses. If I was dealing with it, I would have just said, read chapter 1, you clowns. It's perfectly obvious that what we looked at last week in chapter 1 hasn't happened. He hasn't come back in power and great glory with fire and angels. He hasn't come back as the judge dividing the world into those who've decided not to know God and those who've trusted God. He hasn't done that. But that's not the logic used here. The logic here is that the apostle has already taught them. It's critical that we understand this. Verse 5, the apostle says, I've already taught you this. This is so much like the Bible, isn't it? This is what the Bible always does. It says, you've already been taught this, but you've forgotten it. And so he takes them back to what he's already taught them, he says in verse 5. In terms of games, you'll know that, say, that the games that the Americans play baseball, you know, you've got to run around first base, second base, third base, home. You can't get a home run until you've gone through first, second, third and fourth. So someone can't get to home without having gone through the prior steps. It's a bit like you can't give birth to a child until you've become pregnant. There's a certain order that things happen in, right? right. That, and what he's saying here, there's some things that God does before the return of Jesus. The first is the rebellion, which Jesus seems to pick up in Matthew 24 and Mark 13 when he speaks about particular times of suffering and hardship where the love of many will grow cold. And um, so there's a particular period of rebellion or many people turning away from and turning upon the people of God. But I want to just, because of the want of time today, just look really at the man of lawlessness. The rebellion happens first, then the man of lawlessness. That's what's coming. Now this phrase, the man of lawlessness is a title the Jews used to describe a particular Roman general called Pompey, who in 63 BC deliberately, thoughtfully and maliciously destroyed and damaged and did sacrilege to the temple of God in Jerusalem. It was a cold-blooded act of insult to the God of the Jews. And he was known in some of their writings from around that period as the man of lawlessness. It's a terrible description. If Jesus is the man of God, the incarnation of all that which is good and true and beautiful and eternal. This guy is the very incarnation of evil. Ugly, brutal, dangerous. He is lawless. That's his character. 
He shows no respect for the law of God. Not like many of us as Christians, we find that we break the law of God. We seek to keep it, but we, we acknowledge ourselves to be under the law of God, but we have trouble sometimes keeping it. This guy acknowledges no law at all. He's, that's his character. His destiny is there that it says in verse 3, he's doomed to destruction, or he's called the son of destruction, which is a Middle Eastern way of saying his very nature is to be destroyed. Everything about the lawless people here and the man of lawlessness screams out and will eventually be answered by destruction. His destiny, his, his uh, end, is that he will be destroyed, which is good news, isn't it? Because we're going to look at someone who's fairly scary, but we know he's a loser. Right? Short-term victory, ultimately defeated. His character is lawless, his destiny is destruction, his policy or his method of working is utter unbridled pride. The sort of arrogance that would shock you know, even some elite athletes. Because the way, the way that he speaks is just extraordinary. It's, it's all based on Old Testament stuff. Uh, Ezekiel 28, Daniel 11. In fact, there's a whole lot of quotes from Daniel 11 where this lawless one will say he will exalt himself over everything that is called God or his worship. He sets himself up in God's temple, proclaims himself to be God. Extraordinary. He will oppose all forms of human religion, everything that anyone has ever regarded as sacred. He says, it's all rubbish, it's all about me. I'm God. So whether or not he literally means he sets himself up in the temple, whether or not that means the temple in Jerusalem or the many temples in Thessalonica, we don't know. It may just be a metaphor for someone who says that by his words and his deeds, he puts himself where only God should be and talks himself up. Well, strangely, I don't think many people do that except as a joke now. But it was actually done in the ancient world. I think it was probably because they had such small views of God that it was perhaps possible to pretend that you were God. So Octavian, the Roman emperor, changed his name to Augustus, which is, comes from the root word to mean that which is worshipped. So he actually gives himself a name, uh, the worshipped one. And then uh, his father, Julius Caesar, was allegedly divine. In fact, there was a major temple in this town of Thessalonica devoted to the divine Julius Caesar. Caligula, who was a particularly unpleasant little Roman emperor, was very keen on the idea of him being God. In fact, at one stage, again, to, to sort of irritate the Jews, he, he sent an order to the local authorities that his own image should be set up in the Holy of Holies in the temple, just to really upset the Jewish people. Um, the local authorities sort of um, played a bit of uh, administrative uh, slowdown and um, they managed to, because they knew if they did this, all heck was going to break out. So they were a bit slow to do it. And then thankfully uh, Caligula was, well, if you can say this, thankfully he was murdered. But so it was, it was known for people in those days to actually say, I am God, I should be worshipped. And that's what this man is. This man of lawlessness is going to put him where only God belongs. And therefore he's going to cause all sorts of grief and suffering for anyone who believes in God and takes God seriously. That's his policy. But his power is interesting in verses 6 and 7. This is perhaps the most complicated part. We won't uh, spend too long on it because it would just be a waste of time for us. Now you know what is holding him back. So here's the man of lawlessness. He's ready to go. But he, we have this word uh, that pops up twice here, that, that he's being held back. It mean, It's quite a vigorous word. It could mean being oppressed. He's being held down. Someone's holding him back. So he wants to get on the starting blocks, but there's someone he's chained up, can't get out. And what he says to the Thessalonians is, not to us, you know what is holding him back. Now, we haven't got the faintest clue. 
Because we're not even sure who this particular guy is. You know, you can, you can get the comments out from the, from the library or wander up to more college or go to wherever you like, get some, you know, steal them from your minister, whatever, get some... And, you know, you can spend weekends reading about who the man of lawlessness might have been, what it was that was holding him back. There's some interesting theories, but that's all they are. But the Thessalonians knew. All we know is this, is that this great force and person of evil, the man of lawlessness, is actually being restrained until the appointed time, the time that actually God has allowed him to rear up and rule for a moment. So we don't know exactly who this person is. We don't know what's restraining him. The Thessalonians did. We don't. But what we know is that even the most powerful evil people are actually under control. Now that is just saying what the Bible says elsewhere. Even the devil himself is on the leash from God. He can only do what in the end God will allow him to do. Now that causes other sorts of questions for us. But fundamentally what it's saying to us is even if we have trouble understanding the whole picture, it actually says don't panic. There is not some completely free and independent power of evil. Even the power of Satan himself and his expression, the man of lawlessness, is actually under the control of God. It's being held back in verse 6. seems as if it's being held back by some force or a structure in verse 7, it's much more personal. The one now holding him back will continue to do so until it's taken out of the way. So how much power has this guy got? Lots. Terrifying power when he gets out. I take it this is the beast in uh, Revelation 13. It's probably the same character that you can read that in your leisure. Or perhaps the Antichrist. Uh, you, you think the Antichrist was all over the Bible because it's all over some of the Hollywood movies. Um, the man of lawlessness is probably the same character as the Antichrist. Uh, and probably the same character as the beast. These terrifying forces of evil that are directly opposed to Jesus, to God, and therefore Christians are in trouble when they're around. Uh, we, know, we know what we need to know, which is even the evil, the most intense forms of evil, are under God's control. Then verse 8, his career is uh, described in two movements, up and then down. Then the lawless one will be revealed. He finally gets free to do his thing. Whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendour of his coming. Jesus will just destroy him. I, don't, I can't think of any living thing that I know of that I could kill just by going, I could move it to dust perhaps, as long as it wasn't too firmly attached to something. But what it's saying here is this magnificent force of evil. And there's no Helm's deep struggle you know, between... God and, and the evil forces that goes on all night and there's a close thing but in the end the good guys win. Right? Uh, in fact, when you read the book of Revelation it's almost disappointing because you get these massive armies gathering together, these horrible beasts and dragons and then it just says, uh, and the Lord Jesus spoke a word and killed them all. <laughs> you know, you're expecting hours of bloodshed. <laughs> it's not some dualistic near thing, it's just, it's just a word of command. So he has a short career up like a rocket and down like a stick. Verse 9. What's his method? Well, it won't surprise you when you see that he gets his power from Satan to know what his method is. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan, displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles and signs and wonders in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. 
You see, the fundamental power and strength of the devil is the lie. This is how he works in your life. This is how he has worked from Genesis 3 onward. Jesus says in John 8, he is a murderer and a liar. The way in which the devil murders people eternally, sends them into hell, is by lying. Every time you sin, it's because you believe one of the devil's lies. That is, that you will be happier in defiance against God. That life is found in disobedience. Every time you find yourself all wrapped up in worry, unless you've got a serious medical condition, sort of an anxiety condition where it's a little different, if you're the ordinary sort of mug punter like I am, and you find yourself in periods of terrible anxiety instead of periods of joy and trust, even in hardship, it's because you are not believing the truth of God, you are believing a lie, which is that things are out of control, that your father might not look after you. Your father might make a dumb decision about your future, that that person who you need for your happiness may not be earmarked for you, or that mark that you need in order to get, in order to get, might not get. You can trust God. Therefore, we should obey him. Therefore, we should relax. The devil is a liar. You know, I want to put an adjective like he's a bloody liar. But that probably wouldn't help all that much. But he's a really dirty liar. He's a first-class liar. But all he deals in is lies. When you've been a Christian for a couple of years, you'll have heard all of them, really. He's not very creative. Only God is creative. But I'm so dumb, he doesn't need to be creative. Same old lie that he used some years ago. Well, often he worked with me. The devil is a liar. This guy is empowered by the devil. So what does he work in? Counterfeit miracles, signs and wonders. So don't be too impressed. I mean, miracles are impressive, but don't be too impressed if you see miracles or signs and wonders. Because it may come from the devil. The Jews of Jesus' day in the Talmud, the rabbis, will say they'll acknowledge that Jesus did miracles. But they'll argue that he got his power from Satan. The presence of a supernatural sign and wonder doesn't necessarily tell you it's God. It just tells you something supernatural is there. This guy is a counterfeit, a liar, a deceiver, and that is how he does his damage. Therefore, you see, what is the answer to the problem? How does the antiseptic work? It works by dealing in truth. The answer, the place of safety, the ultimate solution from our side until Jesus destroys the man of lawlessness is to be caught up in the truth. And you remember in, in um, 1 John 2 when it speaks about the Antichrist, the only place it speaks about the Antichrist is in John's letters. It's not a big theme in the Bible. He says, uh, you know how there's an Antichrist. He says, but I tell you there are many Antichrists have come. So it may well be like this with the man of lawlessness. There may be a one last great end time man of lawlessness, but there are probably many like that. He speaks about, in verse 7, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. How will it work? Same way as the man of lawlessness will, by deception. And presumably the problem for these Christians here is actually part of the mystery of lawlessness. They've been lied to. Someone's lied to them, either through a lying spirit in their meeting or through someone lying about what the apostle has said. The mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Deception is at play. But we can be confident because the man of lawlessness is ultimately under the power of God and will have a very short reign, unlike us. So he's dealt with the debtor. Well, let's look very briefly at point three and four. The immunisation, as I've, as I've mentioned, what is the thing that actually keeps us safe? 
Well, if the weapon of choice of the evil one is lies and deceit and deception, that which will keep you safe is obvious, isn't it? It's truth. And that is one of the themes in this book. It just runs through, um, if you have a look at verse uh, 11 and verse uh, 13 and verse 10. Those who perish, uh, those who in the end will go to hell with the man of lawlessness, the devil and all his angels, as Jesus says, what's their fundamental, what's their first problem? They perish because they refuse to love the truth. They don't love the truth. They're not passionately committed to care about the truth. They're passionately committed to other things. But they're not lovers of the truth. And because of that, they leave themselves open to a thousand lies and deceits. Clever, neat, nearly right deceptions. Because they don't love the truth. On the other hand, why were the, why were the Thessalonians saved? Look at, one, look at verse 13. We ought always to thank God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because from the beginning God chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. Right? That's the gospel. The message about Jesus is there described as the truth. So these guys are in the, the way forward is to be a lover of the truth. If you don't love the truth, you will be deluded. So we need to be very careful, friends, that we're not just, if you're a Christian, that you're not just someone who says, I believe the Bible is the word of God. I believe that, that the, as Jesus says, your word is truth in John 17. That not just that we say, yes, it's true, but you are a lover of the truth. That you regularly read the truth. That you, that you regularly expose yourself to the truth. That when the Bible is read, if it's read in the churches you go to, that you listen to that more carefully than any other thing you do in the church service. Much more important than the sermon is the reading of God's word. That you pay attention to the truth. As J.R. Packer says, we need to be people who have bibline blood. That you've drenched yourself in the scriptures so much that you read it. Sometimes intensively studying a small passage. Sometimes just reading whole books. Uh, that that is the thing that will keep you safe. It will mark you out as a lover of the truth. And the strange thing about the Bible is the more you read it, the more you love it. It's addictive in a good way. And it will keep you safe if you choose not to, I'm sorry if I ran out of time, you'll find actually God, if you, if you say to God, I don't want to know the truth, and you cover your ears, you may well find that God will help you by removing your eardrums. It's quite scary in verse 11. For this reason God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie. If when God looks at the way you relate to the truth of his gospel and the truth that he shouts to you from the creation and finds you to be a person who says, I can't see anything. Gee, I wish I knew what the truth was. I wish I could just hear the message of God. You'll find in the end God will, well, as he did with Pharaoh. Pharaoh hardened his heart, so God said, you want a hard heart? I'll help you. I'll harden your heart. That's kind of scary, isn't it? But it's, it's taught in the book of Proverbs. It's taught in Romans 1. It's here. And if a person says no to God in a cold-blooded way, they don't love the truth, they may find that God helps them so they're no longer safe. Well, now, just briefly, point four. The concern of the writer here is that these Christians, just go to verse 16 with me, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope encourage your hearts and strengthen you. What, what God always wants for you if you're one of his children, what God always wants for his people is that you be encouraged. He wants you to be strengthened. At times you'll need to correct us. 
slap us around a bit, wake us up. But his intention is always eternal encouragement and good hope. He wants his people to be marked by joy. It honours him. It pleases him. Any father likes to see their kids happy. So what he marks up here is that they should be filled with good hope. Generally speaking, Christians can be hopeful, and if I can use a hackneyed old saying, because we don't know what the future holds, but we do know who holds the future. I know that's corny, but I find that helpful sometimes. No idea what the future holds. All sorts of diseases lie down the track for me, I'm sure of that. And, you know, I don't know what the future holds, I know who holds my future. That makes you generally optimistic. And more specifically, in the end, what is the future? The future is Jesus. That's where we're heading to. The return of... He hasn't already come. This is not paradise on earth. The resurrection of the body hasn't happened. It's still to come. In the end, our future is Jesus. There'll be wandering ways on the way. And that's going to be good when the beloved returns and takes us home to be with him. We have good hope. Not like the sad, hopeless state of the Greeks and even our own culture. And therefore, eternal encouragement. That's great. Not just any old encouragement. But encouragement that comes from eternity will take you through all the way to eternity. The word encouragement is the word that was used where they'd try to put courage into soldiers before they went to battle. You know, Braveheart. A great rallying speech before they show their bottoms to the British. That sort of, you know, I won't get the speech, but you know, it's to to put... Now, the Thessalonians need... You need courage. You need to be encouraged. And just you can see it in English. Courage needs to be put into you. The end part is in. We need courage to be put into us. We get that from a clear knowledge of the truth and a clear understanding of our future. So today, perhaps, perhaps even today, Jesus Christ may return. He really might, and it's worth thinking about that. He may well be back today. He may not be back for a couple of years. But we live every day knowing that Jesus says, on a day just like today, he'll be back. We'll be gathered to be with him. And then, as it says in 1 Thessalonians, we will be ever with the Lord. And that's worth waiting for. And it gives us courage for the day. How about if I pray, then we'll head off. Father, this is a strange passage which you have put for us with the man of lawlessness and the restrainer. Uh, We thank you for your um, little church in Thessalonica. We thank you that they were part of your great plan. We thank you for those who brought the good news to us. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would work in us by your Holy Spirit, that we would be men and women of hope, who believe our future, rejoice in it, and find uh, courage to face the day, knowing that the future is well and truly in your good hands. We pray all this in Christ's name.